Yeah, let's do it. I'm pumped. Let's let the healing begin. God help you if you use voiceover in your work, my friends. God help you. It's flaccid, sloppy writing. I don't want you to be the guy in the PG-13 movie. Everyone's really hoping makes it happen. I don't want you to be like the guy in the rated R movie, you know? The guy you're not sure whether or not you like yet. Hello and welcome to this edition of the Get Your Film Fix podcast. I'm Lee Carlo. This week, joined only, unfortunately, by Chapin Hemingway. I know you're all very happy to hear that I am back after my absence last week. This week on the podcast, we are going to do a double feature of sorts where we will discuss Ridley Scott's 1982 classic Blade Runner, along with its sequel, directed by Denis Villeneuve, Blade Runner 2049 that came out last year. Uh, we'll probably discuss them uh, together and um, pick bits and pieces of each one as we go through. And that will tie us into a conversation about whether or not Hollywood may or may not be running out of story ideas. And since sequels seem to be a uh, favorite of ours as of late, we're going to finish it off with our top five sequels we'd like to see and to make it a little tougher on ourselves, who we'd like to see direct said sequel. Every civilization was built off the back of a disposable workforce. But I can only make so many. Shh. Happy birthday. order to things. That's what we do here. We keep order. The world is built on a wall that separates kind. Tell either side there's no wall. You bought a war. You're a cop. I had your job once. I was good at it. I know. All right, Chapin. So I suppose I don't have so much of a question for you. Oh, um, good. I'm, I'm sure I could formulate it into a question of sorts, but I, I do think this, this is a little bit of an interesting area to discuss to kick us off because, as I mentioned to you uh, a couple weeks back, I've been listening a little bit to the DGA podcast, Yeah, um, which is really interesting, and I'll leave it at that. I'm not here to plug somebody else's podcast. Um, but uh, I was listening to um, Denis Villeneuve get interviewed by Ryan Johnson about Blade Runner 2049. Ryan I, Johnson, I also listened to that, yeah. As we know, directed the new Star Wars movie. Um, and Johnson brought up a, a interesting question about uh, kind of the responsibility that directors have when um, directing sequels to very iconic movies. And my first reaction to that was that's just another kind of self-congratulatory pat on the back for directors because of like what young director's dream isn't to direct a Star Wars or Blade Runner movie. Sure. Um, so don't give me the whole crap about, oh, it's just like I'm burdened with this. But I do think it's an interesting conversation because, you know, if you, I feel like if a director goes into a movie thinking, okay, I just can't fuck this up, that's a bad thing. 
But at the same time, that could be a motivation to make sure you make the absolute best movie. So is there a way, I guess if there is a question, is there a better approach to go into this? Do you think these directors should be thinking about the old movie when making the new one, or should they just be trying to make the best movie they can? That's a great question. Um, I, I do think it's a really big responsibility. And I know uh, I listened to some other interviews with Villeneuve, and I don't remember if he mentioned it in that particular one with Ryan Johnson. Um, but uh, he he was really, I think, nervous about making this movie. I mean, he's a very esteemed filmmaker um, whose sort of star has been rising as we've talked about on the Sicario podcast. Um, and so I believe him. And when he says that, I think it was an interesting choice, certainly. And now I think it's interesting to point out that his next movie is um, Dune, which is an adaptation of a book that's been done in several different ways. Yeah, David, David, David Lynch, Lynch did, did one. Yeah. yeah. And then there was a, there was a, um, I think a, a, a TV series that was done of it. Um, and I, I think, I mean, we, we discussed before this podcast that we didn't, you know, this might just be us filleting. didn't even knew the whole time. <laughs> um, and we should try to avoid doing that. But I, I really do think he, he did the right thing. I mean, he made a movie that feels very much married to the, the original. And I think that that's a tricky thing to do with Blade Runner. I think, um, I don't want to give too much away about my thoughts about Blade Runner yet, but I think he captured, he did for, for that new script, what I think, uh, Ridley Scott did for the original Blade Runner. Um, and I think that was really, really smart. He brought, I think some really modern tendencies to it. You know, he, I think he had the benefit of as the scripts reveal, you know, this being set, I think roughly 30 years in the future, roughly the same amount of time between the two sequels, um, in the real world and the, you know, technology has grown of course. And I think he adapted sort of that world to be a little bit more realistic in terms of, you know, where we would see things going. Um, and so for that, I think he did a really fantastic job and I think there is a responsibility. I think you need to make a movie. I mean, I think if he, if he just, if he made a completely different movie that was good, you'd wonder why, why is this a Blade Runner movie? You know, we would be asking ourselves that, um, you know, why, why not just call it something else? Um, and so, yeah, I think, um, I think that's, that's my answer. Yeah. So I think what's, what it, it, interestingly enough, kind of the flip side to your suggestion that the responsibility is there and like you want to avoid making kind of an entirely different movie comes back to Ridley Scott, who directed Prometheus and there was all this excitement about it being a prequel to Alien and then sort of turned out that it wasn't that. And I think there was a lot of disappointment. And I recently rewatched Prometheus and, and actually enjoyed it a, a whole lot more than I did in the theater. And I As think, did I. Mm-hmm. I think not having that expectation made a big difference. And, you know, with Alien Covenant now, I think maybe we're starting to see that it, maybe it was a prequel in some way, shape or form. But that's beside the point. But I think that is a little bit where, you know, the responsibility to stay true to the original is important. But I do think that there's a divide, too, because an odd movie that came to mind when I was thinking about this is the uh, the most recent Rocky movie, Rocky Balboa, not the Creed movies. Yeah. Um, which wasn't very good. And. You know, it, but it was, it, I, you know, I've always been a big fan of those movies, so I went to see it. But my biggest criticism of it was oddly that the actors 
we're tr- we're trying to act the way they acted in the original. Does mm. that make sense? Yeah, Instead sure. of just acting like the character, they try. So, and Burt Young was the biggest example. He, that's a, that's an actor who will never, you know, put turn in a performance as good as he did as Polly in kind of the first few Rocky movies, especially. Right. And then you never saw him again for twenty five years. But he tried to act the way he acted as Polly in the original, and it didn't work. And I think that was their their mindset was, okay, we owe this to the original series to make sure that we're doing it the same. And I think that's where there's a dangerous element to it. And the more important thing is to make sure that you're making a good movie. You know, you can be true to the to the original, but you have to, first and foremost, be making a good movie. And I think, you know, that is what may separate, you know, good directors from bad directors and good actors from bad actors. And Villeneuve, you know, certainly I think did a good job of balancing that line uh, with 2049. Yeah, I mean, I think it goes back to what we discussed about with Sicario. Um, I mean, I when you bring on what I hope Villeneuve did for this project and I hope you know great directors and great actors do for projects in general is kind of, it's almost like a, you know, a sign-off, like a, a, I'm, you know, I believe in this. I believe this is a good project. I believe in this project. This isn't just a, a money grab. And I think with Blade Runner, you know, it wasn't a successful movie when it came out. It's got this cult status and um, has been kind of uh, deified since it came out. And as, you know, many, many different versions have come out on different formats. And um, so it's it's not like it's an unpopular movie. It's, it's very, you know, much entrenched in pop culture, I think. But... Um, you know, spoiler alert, Blade Runner 2049 did not do very well. Um, it cost a lot of money. And so I think this really was done for the right reasons. And I think yeah. Villeneuve kept, keeps bringing that aspect to his, his movies. Um, I hope that's the case for Dune. I haven't really, and I'm not, I don't know the book or I haven't even seen any of the adaptations before it. But, you know, I think with what I witnessed in Blade Runner 2049, I, 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 my guess is he, he's doing it for the right reasons, right? Like I think it kind of the spirit of the project and the spirit of the reason for making a sequel to a movie that came out 30 years ago is, um, is, is one that's gotta be, it's gotta be, it's gotta be for good, for a good reason. And, um, I think they found a, a way to do it. Yeah, and, and you alluded to it earlier that Villeneuve spent two weeks trying to decide whether or not he wanted to to do this, or two months or something. It was like some absurd, absurd amount of time that he spent trying to decide if he wanted to do it, which is sort of the contrast to what I was saying before about you know what young director, or upcoming director, or, you know flourishing director wouldn't want to direct one of these movies. But um, moving on quickly from that to get into a little bit more on on these movies, and I know we hardly ever do this. Um, but I kind of want to start with the original Blade Runner and just confirm this. But I believe you are a big fan of that movie. Am I wrong? Yes, I am. Okay. I am not, actually. And I never really have been. Um, I rewatched it. This Which is past interesting week. because you've been really pushing us to do this podcast. It, I have, it wasn't me. Because I've, I really wanted to watch 2049. And, you know, I intended to rewatch the original before watching it again. I actually. Um, had an evening without the uh, wife and baby earlier this week, and I watched both in the same night. It was amazing. Oh, my um, God. <laughs> uh, but I am still not a huge fan of the original Blade Runner and never have been. Um, but 
I certainly and it's it's absolutely thought provoking and and that's you know that's always something you kind of just say about movies like this. But I've literally been thinking about both Blade Runner movies since Tuesday night or whatever night it was that I watched them. So it's right. certainly thought provoking. So you know for that you have to give it a lot of credit. Um, and while it's difficult to look at those visuals from 1982 and admire them, you still have to. Um, however, I do find, and I read something, I read, um, an old review from Ebert that this was something he criticized in his original review that the visuals overwhelm the story. And I think that's absolutely true in the original Blade Runner. Hmm. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I kind of agree, but I disagree with the effect. I think, I think the movie, this is, Blade Runner is a director's movie. I think if we were to go back and we had a, a, a written version of the script, which I'm sure exists somewhere, and we, we we read it, we wouldn't be impressed. I mean, I think it's a great, I think it's an interesting story. Oh, see, I it's think an, it's interesting because it's so simple. Like, it is, it, 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 no, I know, I know. It's it's simple, and it's an adaptation of a, a Philip K. Dick book. Um, yeah, what is it? So, you, do androids, dream, do androids and, dream of electric sheep? Yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, <laughs> so I think, you know, a lot of times... Uh, I think that uh, you know, um, it's it's a simple story. I think it's it's not one that um, that it, it, you know it, it, it's you know it's, it's interesting. It's but it's kind of it's kind of a, a, a sort of a typical direct uh, detective story. And yeah. um, but but the movie is is the movie is sort of timeless and very well received and, and has this reputation because of what Ridley Scott brought to it. I mean, there's no. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. His design sense, his like meticulous um, attention to detail. One of my favorite books um, is this book about the making of Blade Runner called Future Noir, and it's like a very detailed analysis of how they made the movie. And um, you know, like he just like really it just wasn't at that time. Maybe he is now, but like he he wasn't an actor's director. He didn't really talk to actors. He was just like all about design, and he sketched things out and. Um, you know, you that that so much of the of of this movie is just the again. I hate saying it, but the mise en scène, right? Like the things yeah. that are in the frame, the things you see. It's not so much the dialogue. Um, I think there are some some really. I think there are a lot of excellent performances in here, and I think that really aids the story. But it's not really what you remember. Um, it's really just like this world that he created, and it speaks so much, like. The world, the the Los Angeles in 2019, which you know coming up, um, is it's what it's going. I mean, I imagine I, I haven't been back out there since honestly since we lived there, which was almost 10 years ago. But I imagine it looks probably pretty it's, close to that. It's now, probably right? pretty close. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Um, and it, it, you know, you everything you take away from that, like it, the, what what the movie is saying, it says through the images on the screen, and I'm like. That's what I really, I always talk about that almost academically. Like, yeah, show, don't tell. But this is really right, like right. the perfect example of that. And so I understand like why someone like you or probably Jeremy even more so than you, although I don't know Jeremy's thoughts on the movie. Like people, as we, as he and I discussed last week about who, you know, someone who loves structure and story might not be as attracted to this movie because it's not really about story. It's almost like right. it exists in spite of the story. Yeah, um, it's a good and point. I totally understand why that doesn't work for a lot of people, but I think uh, I am a little bit more in tuned and inclined to like sort of meditative 
movies like this. So do you think that that everything that you just said, do you think that translates to 2049, which was a movie that I liked actually better than the original Blade Runner? And it feels like it makes it feels like that makes me a bad cinephile in some way. But I, I think it had a more structured story and a simpler, oddly, a simpler story to follow and maybe even a more interesting story. Hmm. Um, yeah, I think so. I think, again, I think um, I have some, my, my biggest problems with the movie come from the plot and the structure of, uh, of the script. Um, but again, I think the same, the same thing. It's, it's, it's Denis Villeneuve bringing a design sense and, and a, an atmospheric sort of tone um, to the movie that he does to many of his movies, much like Sicario, as we discussed a couple of podcasts ago. Um, and yeah, I think, I think it, it's not quite as sort of stunning. Um, I mean, it's stunningly beautiful. I think it's like the visuals are in many ways, I think much more impressive than the original Blade Runner. Obviously the technology is grown and gotten much better. Um, but I don't think it's quite as, um, I don't know, quite as uh, visually. I don't think it's quite as 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 visually inclined as the original Blade Runner. Yeah. Um, well, what I really liked about what he does in what Villeneuve does is, and and I still have a similar issue with kind of the visuals being a bit of a distraction in in the tw- in twenty forty nine. But he does like he does such interesting things with his color palettes and like every location kind of is defined by you know, a different color. Um, and so he, I think he does something in 2049 and it isn't totally successful that I felt was missing a little bit in original Blade Runner is he, he allowed you to navigate the world a little bit easier. Um, you know, it, it, I think in the original and, and it's very much intentional, it's supposed to kind of be this like overpopulated Los Angeles, and you know everything is sort of chaotic and you know but you never really know where you are like i never felt like i had a good sense of place in the movie and i don't mean that by like creating a sense of place like i didn't know where the characters were in a given moment everything kind of looks the same and that's still a little bit of an issue in 2049 but i felt like it worked better yeah uh i was sort of watching it this morning and um Really, yeah, really. I mean, he was using you know anamorphic lenses um, in the early '80s, and it just has this effect of like compressing everything. It just sort of flattens everything out, and so you're like you walk around like Deckard's apartment, and you have no idea what that apartment looks like. You're looking right. for like a bed, and everything looks like all this, all this sort of everything is is sort of packed into this very tight space, and then he compresses everything with these with these like long anamorphic lenses and. Um, you, yeah, you really just have no idea where you are. And I think that was partly, my guess is partly because of, you know, you don't have set extensions and digital capabilities of, you know, making this world. And so you've, you've got to make that production design really work for you. And it, you know, it's, it's easier to show a little of it than a lot of it, you know, in a wide shot, Mm -hmm. for example. Um, but yeah, I also think it has that effect of creating this very kind of overpopulated yet kind of lonely world, um, you know, he did sort of the same thing um, with those lens choices in Alien. You know, like it's, you make you really make that that ship feel claustrophobic, even though it's it's like enormous yep. but claustrophobic. If that makes yeah. sense. But I always had the same problem with Alien: is it was hard to navigate where you were on that ship, 
and it's it's sort of the same thing. It works so much better, I feel like, in Alien because you're supposed to feel have this sense of claustrophobia, which maybe you are to a certain extent in Blade Runner, but that's certainly not the primary objective. Right. Um, so move continuing with 2049, and I mentioned and I like I mentioned how I like the story. I feel like it was it was interesting. I thought it was actually a really good idea for a follow up to Blade Runner. You know, anytime you hear okay, we're going to make a sequel to an iconic movie. Like, okay, what could you possibly do with that? I think they had a good choice, and it was kind of a, an interesting mystery to it, and they, they worked the twists well. Um, however, I feel like what the original Blade Runner doesn't have are one any one-dimensional or flawed characters, and I think 2049 does in a few areas. Um, most obviously is is robin wright's character which i don't know why she always seems to end up in these types of roles it's like katherine hmm. Ka- keener and soldado right. and I, I really didn't like her in this but i think more importantly than her was the, the jared leto character hmm. and and you know the quote-unquote bad guys him and the character of love um who was sort of like the replicant that was you know working for jared leto kind of chasing down um you know this mystery uh sort of alongside ryan gosling but i i i felt like they weren't fully realized like there was such an interesting element to you know who he was he's sort of the the um uh L, what's the guy's name in the original i'm forgetting um, tyrell creator, tyrell yeah. yeah he's sort of the the equivalent to that character but just i felt like wasn't that interesting like it, it i think they tried to have the interest piece be that he was blind and you know but sort of sinister but like i just i felt like there was something missing there and it was it it hurt that whole element of the story and it it oddly lowered the stakes because i didn't feel afraid of them i I never was worried that you know gosling wasn't going to win yeah i mean um my that kind of ties in with my problem with the with the plot um I, i think the the issue that i had was that I think when they were coming up with this story, I agree it's an interesting idea, this this idea that, you know, replicants can suddenly, um, can now kind of procreate. And, and the uh, I think the objective of the Jared Leto character was to find the offspring of those two replicants of Deckard and Rachel in order to sort of understand how they were able to do that, right? Is that your understanding too? And Yes. And then because he wants to build this he can only make so many of these replicants and so if they can procreate he can make more um but i never understood the motivation on um uh catherine gitter uh (laughs) no they feel interchangeable because they always get cast in the same types of roles what's her name robin Robin Wright. yeah yeah robin wright's character and for that matter the jared leto and and the replicant loves character that I mean, she says she had this ridiculous line where it's like it breaks the world or something like that. You know, I know I didn't get that. And like, I'm they like, tried I'm to not... create, they tried to like say like the stakes are high, but let me make them even higher. Right, and I and I don't really know what that means. Um, I think it goes a little bit back to the original Blade Runner where, um, and I was see I watched 2049 first, and then I watched Blade Runner, um, and I noticed that when he when Deckard is first uh, talking with his police chief that he talks he has sort of the same motivations that robin wright does and that like you know they don't, we don't want anybody to find out that there are replicants on earth and we got to you know stop this before anybody finds out like the idea is to sort of keep it quiet 
Um, and so there's this idea of this like delicate balance that sort of Robin Wright and the um, whatever that name got actors Emmett, Emmett Walsh reference. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't, I, I never sort of believed that I never really understood why that was important. Um, and for this, for that same, in that same regard, I, I don't think I was ever, I was convinced of Jared Leto's motivation either. And I mean, I just don't like him as an actor. Um, I think, I, yeah, I, I don't really know what he was doing with that, with that character. Um, but yeah, like I, I think, you know, you needed a villain and, I I guess he was the best choice for that. Um, yeah, but the yeah, interesting was, thing his is motivations were just not clear to me, and thus I wasn't particularly. One thing that I really did like about the original Blade Runner is that as that story progresses, these replicants that Deckard is trying to hunt down, that especially at the beginning you're led to believe are the villains kind of turn out not to be so villainous. I mean, they are essentially the the antagonists, but they have somewhat, uh, I don't know if pure is the right word, but they have somewhat pure objectives in that they simply want to know more about, you know, where they came from and, you know, how they can continue on living. Yeah. And there's not inherently anything wrong with that so you start to kind of look at this extra depth to those characters and i think that's really amazing whereas in 2049 you don't have that you don't have that kind of depth to to you know jared leto's character and and especially i mean the uh the love replicant who it's just it's just the bad guy like and and it's just you know it's frustrating because i while i did like this story more like you just you see these sort of conventional type characters that just are just such like staples in you know uh, movies these days that you know are are sort of lazy and and but you just come to accept it and when you have a movie that i think is above average with 2049 you and with a director that i think you know we're clearly um you know been praising a lot lately you you find this in there and it becomes frustrating and you and you think that there could have been more done here and it, grant the 2049 is almost three hours long so like you know maybe there's you know some give and take there but there's this tendency in modern movies to sort of up the stakes yes in, in sort of an artificial way um and that line that kind of bad line from robin wright this breaks the world or whatever it is um the idea that there's a sort of cataclysmic thing happening and if it's not solved the world's going to fall apart you know I, I think this could have been just a detective story much like the first one and it would have been i think it would have been just as good um i agree with you with the running time too it seemed it, it just seemed like half an hour too long right yeah um, well and they and and, to, and not to give it and, and this shouldn't really give anything away but you get to this point in the movie and, and i actually really liked the for lack of a better term the twist that this took um, you know, Ryan Gosling is trying to hunt down um, this offspring of Deckard and Rachel, and you know he comes to certain conclusions and then finds out maybe that those conclusions aren't correct. But uh, you know, I think I thought that was actually really interesting, and and I thought the way that it was done um, with you know certain plants and payoffs I thought was really good. But you got this, you also got this like this group that for some inexplicable reason Mackenzie Davis was a part of. You know, even though Tully. she was just a random prostitute at the beginning of the movie, um, yeah, Tully uh, in another film with a unique three, uh, unique threesome. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Um, yeah, she won't she won't sign on unless she has something like that. Um, but uh, yeah, like you got this group that is like sort of trying to protect, you know, these secrets that also felt like it sort of kind of came out of nowhere. And it was another example of like what you were saying with this, like this, uh, you know, raising the stakes idea that need that they feel is necessary. And and you're right. I think this could have been interesting if it was just Gosling's search for this child. I mean, yeah. that's kind of what the original is. It's just Deckard searching for these three replicants. You know, there wasn't any real fear that those replicants were going to, you know, destroy the world, you know, Avengers style, Avengers villain style or anything like that. Like, yeah. the, his job is to retire replicants, you know, good or bad. And so you don't need that extra stakes. And that's sort of like kind of the simplicity of the original Blade Runner you know, that maybe modern audiences expect more. And so 2049 was sort of forced down that path. Um, but like you said, they made this movie kind of for the right reasons. So that shouldn't shouldn't necessarily be a factor. You Then you throw in this, this additional company or corporation or group or whatever you want to call it that are trying to protect this, this child. And it all just, it, it takes away from kind of that individual... Uh, character of gosling which is interesting and gosling played it really well and i think he was great in this movie and i'm i've actually been really souring on him in the past few years Mm. um uh and i don't know that i've totally put my finger on why yet but um i thought he was great i thought he was it was perfect casting i thought he, he his biggest strength is the kind of silent type he does it in half nelson he does it great in drive and he does it again here and that's when he's at his best and i think he annoys me when he's the you know super charming and handsome guy from la la land and crazy stupid love yeah um essentially anytime he's he's um opposite emma watt uh not emma watson emma stone yeah um but uh yeah i think he was great and i i would i would have just loved to just kind of watch him in the same way that i watched deckard um, it's weird. It, through this conversation, I sound like I liked the original more than 2049. Yet I, you didn't said before I liked 2049 better. But I'm starting to realize maybe that the original is 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 done better. I don't know. Yeah, I thought I I agree about Gosling. I'm really excited to see him in that new um, that first man, which is oh unfortunately yeah, from the director of. La La Land, but looks really great where he plays Neil Armstrong, who is um, a similarly awkward kind of silent person. And I think he's going to be great in that. And I love space movies, especially the Apollo program. So um, I am excited for that. Uh, I thought, yeah, I agree. He was, I thought he was really good. And I think especially watching him again in this, like he is so good at that. Just saying so much. I mean, he's like a real film actor, you know, he doesn't have to talk to tell you things. And, um, I'd love to see him work with Villeneuve again, especially. Um, yeah, he does a great job, and it's you know the problem is he's super handsome, so he gets cast easily in kind of this you know these rom coms or you know versions of rom coms, and he does a good job of of not falling too far into that trap. Like I still think he picks pretty good roles, and yeah, um, you know I just feel like he's. Uh, the charming Ryan Gosling has been wearing thin on me. So I, I like seeing him in movies like this. Cause that's where I, you know, really got to like him. You know, half Nelson was really the first one for him where I realized he, how good he was. Um, you know, I remember him from 
you know, his smaller parts and other stuff, but um, that's where he's best. And, and that's the character that is here. And, you know, maybe it's too much of the same thing as Deckard, but I think that works. In 2013, when the Earth's rotation came to a halt, the world called on the one man who could make a difference. When it happened again, the world called on him once more, and no one saw it coming. Three more. Now, the one man who made a difference five times before is about to make a difference again. Only this time, it's different. Who left the fridge open? Tug Speedman. Scorcher 6. Global Meltdown. Here we go again. Again. So I mentioned earlier that I was listening to the DGA podcast with Ryan Johnson um, interviewing Denis Villeneuve. And the interesting thing there, of course, is that Villeneuve uh, directed 2049, a sequel to the iconic Blade Runner, and Ryan Johnson, uh, at the time of the interview, was finishing up um, Star Wars The Last Jedi, um, which, you know, needless to say, is a follow-up, uh, or the second sequel in the new Star Wars movies. Right. Um, you know, movies that many people probably said should never be made. Um, and we've certainly seen a lot of this, a lot of uh, movies being made. Star Wars, Blade Runner, Indiana Jones got a sequel, Jurassic Park with the Jurassic World. Uh, the one that I actually thought was kind of interesting was um, was Pixar, that for so many years we praised for their original stories and how amazing their movies continue to be. Uh, and now it seems like it's a sequel to Toy Story, another sequel to Cars, The Incredibles 2, and they're even going back and rehashing their old movies and making sequels. Um, so this is a tough question, and I, I, I'd be surprised if you had an answer off the top of your head. Um, but what is the last truly original story you saw in a movie? Wow. And there's some that come to mind. One in, in particular that came to mind. I'm sure there's been some since. Um, but Eternal Sunshine was the first one that came to my mind, and that was 2004. Oh, okay. You're not saying just like Annihilation, which was original. no. I mean like true. Like you watched that and you said that that's an idea that has never been explored. Hmm. You know, and Inception, maybe, that's another one, you know? Yeah. That's, you know, with the way he dealt with dreams. Um, and, but I think it's interesting. And, and because we're still, we're, we still have and we're always going to have the Tarantinos and the Paul Thomas Andersons and, and even, you know, the Wes Andersons that, you know, kind of create their own stories, whether or not there's pieces of other movies and things that they're paying tribute to there. I think those will always exist, but... Is it that just there's more money to be spent on movies and there's more movies coming out? That's why we're getting more and more of these? Or is it that, you know, the truly Hollywood movies are just this is all they have left? It's a good question. I don't know the answer. I think it I was thinking about this. Um, I recently rewatched and it made my one of my top fives 
Um, I think it, it made the had no business being good top five, um, but it was Waterworld, which was this like very, mm-hmm. I mean, it, it's not a particularly original film, but it's an original idea. Um, it's not, there's, you know, it was not, it was not based on any previous IP. Right. Um, and, you know, it was greenlit as pro- one of the most expensive movies ever made. And of course went, you know, terribly over budget. But um, I just was thinking, you know, they would never, they would just never do that today. And you mentioned Inception, you know, Nolan was only able to make that movie after the huge success of the dark Knight. Yeah. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, I think it's a weird balance because movies are so expensive today. Um, and they're obviously allowed, you know, the, the studios understand what they're doing when they green light a movie at $250 million. But when they do that, you know, there's a certain, um, there's sort of a certain expectation, um, that they, you know, they've got to fulfill a certain amount of about, uh, you know, make a certain amount of money, of course. But but there's a, I think there's like a, it, that's just kind of what what you do. There's just like a trend in in making in making these kind of big movies that have a built-in fan base. And I I'm not convinced that it's necessary. I mean, I think like the idea that you need to appeal to the broadest amount of people. And the only way to do that is to do something that's been done before and been, uh, has, has been proven correct. I think the, uh, uh, you know, the modern audience is a little more discerning than that, but there is this, there is this sort of chicken or egg scenario where like, do we go see this stuff because they're making it or are they making it because we go see this stuff, you know? Yeah. Um, and it's, it's interesting because, you know, if you look, so Granted, when when Star Wars: The Last Jedi comes out, it makes so so much money, and Jurassic Worlds that are just awful come out and makes so so much money. You know, on paper it looks great because the box offices are so high. But if you just had, if you consistently had movies like Eternal Sunshine or what I feel like we're seeing a lot of more with you know as far as original stories and uh, is kind of the movies set in reality with like a like a twist absurd twist to it the movie that came to mind was the lobster yeah, uh, yeah, with yeah, Colin yeah. Farrell. like we're seeing a lot of that kind of in the independent world right. but if it was if it was more movies like that that just came out yet yeah, the box offices would be so much smaller but so would the money having been spent right so the the net would still be essentially the same in many ways and you'd be getting so much less of these you know, shitty Jurassic World movies and the ridiculous Indiana Jones movie. And I really didn't like the most recent Star Wars. I thought it was pretty bad. But, um, you know, that it, just because you know, like, so they know these movies are going to make a ton of money. So they dropped $200 million on making them, you know, rather than saying, like, let's get some original ideas and spend $15 million, $25 million on them and make, you know, $85 million at the box office. Well, I don't. I don't agree with that. I think there's a reason they make these bigger movies. I think they just they just make more money. I think they're they make a bigger the profit margins are bigger, um, and they can, you know, you can take a franchise movie and you can make a lot of money. You know, like Disney's created this. You know, they they bought these two. They bought Lucasfilm and they bought Marvel and they bought Pixar, and now they can you know turn that into a whole different type of revenue generator. I think it's a totally different world than. You know, <clears throat> there's no Blade Runner 2049 ride, unfortunately, right? Um, yeah. And there are no, t- nor, nor are there any t- uh, toys associated either. And so That's I think that point. those there's there's a lot of money being made. I mean, to me, I think 
I just blame it on the like the 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 corporatization of 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 movies. I mean, they've I mean, movies have always been made to make money, right? But as no, it's, such a, it's such a good point. All that stuff you don't that has nothing to do with the theater and and the production that makes so much money. Yeah, I mean, I think movies can. I mean, the, uh, Marvel's movies are still profitable. The for the most part, the um, the Star Wars movies are profitable, you know, in and of themselves. And then, of course, they can make more money, you know, in other ways on them. And I just think, like, the more corporatized these movies get, you know, it's it, we should point out, like, 2049 was not made in this sort of traditional way that, like, a Marvel or a or a Star Wars movie is made with a big studio. You know, there's a whole bunch of different people who had to put in money to get that movie made. I mean, it wasn't – it's almost like a – $185 million independent film. It's not, it wasn't made in the same, in the traditional sense. And that's yeah. what you have to do to get a budget like that, uh, you know, uh, uh, for, for a movie like Blade Runner. Um, and I don't know. I, I, I mean, I agree with you. I wish they made more like my, my question is like, you know, I, I, I've been ruining the sort of the demise of Michael Mann movies and he's done that really to himself. But I think, like no, but type that of type of movie yeah. he makes, like they don't make those movies anymore because they're expensive enough that you've got to invest, you know, quite a bit of money in them. But they don't, they aren't the type of movie that that's going to open with a hundred plus million dollars. And so they're, it's sort of like stuck in that middle, middle place, you know. And so it's interesting. The question isn't so much is Hollywood running out of story ideas as much as has Hollywood gotten better at running businesses. And the answer actually is yes, that they have probably um, because they're making business decisions instead of necessarily entertainment decisions. Yeah. Yes. I think it's important to point out when you brought this up, I was thinking about you, you mentioned um, uh, PTA, Paul Thomas Anderson. And uh, who else did you mention? Um, uh, Tarantino, Wes Tarantino. Anderson. Yeah. Um, you know, PTA in particular, he he's made his last two or three movies with Annapurna Pictures. Annapurna Pictures have done, I mean, like a whole bunch of movies. Like, uh, you know, uh, I'll look them up real quick. But, uh, you know, basically Annapurna is uh, Larry Ellison's daughter. So he's the guy who started, uh, he started Oracle. So he's a, one of the richest people alive. And he gave his kids money and now they, you know, make movies with him. <laughs> and... Um, so these movies are basically funded by one person. You know, they, they go out and, and PTA says, I want to make the master and I want to shoot it on 65 millimeter. And she's like, here's $30 million. I mean, that's how those movies get made. Unfortunately, there's not, I mean, there isn't really a lot of studio support. And I mean, Tarantino's interesting because he, he still makes, he, he sort of graduated into this place where he's making these hundred million dollar movies now. And he does have a studio behind them, but even getting, a Tarantino movie made with Leo DiCaprio and Brad Pitt was difficult. You know, his once upon a time in Hollywood, that wasn't, wasn't a, you know, a, a, a just a clear, like, okay, of course we'll do that, you know, because I mean, you do the math and it's, it's still a risk, right? It's still a risk, you know? Um, and so I, I do think it's sad. Like, I think a lot of the, you know, the, the, I guess my point about Annapurna is that like, it's not like the business is really, propping them up. I think like you literally have a billionaire funding these movies that we love. I mean, we owe the last three um, PTA movies to this woman and, you know, she just kind of makes what she thinks is right. And, and it's not, I don't know that that's, that's the right corporate approach, but I mean, you know, it's nice to have a few of those around though. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, the, and, and I mentioned Eternal Sunshine as being kind of one of the last original, truly original stories that, you know, we've seen. Um, Charlie Kaufman, you know, he was make, he was writing a script for a movie that was produced every year or two yeah. from the, you know, 2000 until, um, you know, probably 2008 uh, with Synecdoche, Synecdoche, New York, which he directed. But since then, and I'm looking at it, uh, he's had one movie produced, Anomalisa, which was an animated movie, which was I, I which was interesting. Um, but uh, you know, it's you know his scripts aren't is in demand. Um, so yeah, like you were saying, it's this you know that type of you have to find you have to find a studio that's that's interested in funding those movies. I mean that it's 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 funny you we were uh, Jeremy and I talked about adaptation last week, and so I looked it up, and these movies. All of PTA's movies, especially when we when we were talking a lot about him during the Phantom Thread movie, the the podcast, we I think they 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 live pretty large in our psyche. But I I mean, adaptation only made thirty two million dollars worldwide. Oh my god! Um, I mean, it only made twenty two domestic, so that's a pretty small movie. But like, it has so much significance, and it's so good to us. Um, and it, yeah, it, it, won, and it was a nineteen million dollar budget. It made three million dollars net. <laughs> yeah. So. Like, so like we couldn't make a movie for that anymore. <laughs> no, I mean that's not even a really a profit. I don't think no. that that's not a profit from from um even the worldwide. And so and you look at PTA's movies and I had like I like I thought I thought There Will Be Blood was a was a huge hit. Um but it 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 wasn't. It was I'm looking it up now. It only did 40 million. Yeah, that's you know, crazy. It, domestically and like I, I don't know. I uh, I mean maybe I mean, that's still good, right? Like, I think, I think, I, I think, but I think the point is that people don't make PTA movies to make money. I mean, people, you know, I think they probably do make money, but I don't think that's why people make them. Right. It's a total, and, and that's, and that goes back to what you brought up at the beginning of the podcast with uh, Villeneuve making Blade Runner 2049. Like, he, it wasn't made to, it wasn't for a paycheck. It wasn't, and I hate to, uh, I, I'm not a huge fan of Ryan Johnson. I, I like him, but. It, I guess with the Star Wars movies, it, it, you could argue it's sort of the the best of both worlds. Like he's making it because he wants to make a good Star Wars movie, but he's also <laughs> I'm sure he got paid pretty well for that gig. Yeah. Um. So, it, you know, that might not be the perfect example, but you know, like it, like you were saying, like Villeneuve made this movie, you know, I you know, for lack of a better term, for the right reason uh, to right. make a, a good movie and and. It, <laughs> And it didn't do very well, which it, it sucks that those two things can't go hand in hand. Right. Should we move right. on to our top, ten, top five? Top five. How are we doing on time here? Uh, we're running a little late, but we should we should keep, okay. keep up well, the speed. All right. So top five. So Chapin, I'm not sure if you um, totally put this together in your head, but um, the last four episodes, or at least um, last four things that we have uh, produced have all been sequels 2049 ant-man our mini quick fix on fallen kingdom and sicario day of the soldat oh my god you're so right <laughs> so this is the get your film fix sequel podcast which is interesting because it is sort of a sequel in and of itself a sequel podcast and we're probably going to do mission impossible next so that's yeah. even oh my god yeah so <laughs> i mean but that speaks to what is out and what yeah, exactly. you know what's what's to see so we're we're responding to the marketplace people okay don't blame us don't start writing us emails 
Yeah. Uh, no, no, no. Tape it. Oh, yeah. Please, Start please write us email. We'll take, we'll take any emails we can, really. <laughs> just send anything, any complaints. Even if, you, even if you say stop doing sequels, we will stop. Um, so uh, I sent the idea to you uh, that I think turned out to be kind of difficult, but also sort of fun at the same time. I thought it was brilliant, yeah. Top five sequels that we'd like to see made, and we had to add which director we'd like to see do this. And I don't know if you did the same thing that I did, but I made sure that it couldn't be the same director that directed the original, which many times, you know, you feel like would be the appropriate choice. I, I assume that was going to be um, the case. And so I, yes, I did the same thing. Okay. So I have, I ended up with a decent amount that I'm comfortable with. So <clears throat> why don't you kick it off in case we have some repeats? Um, okay. Well, my number one is really easy. I, uh, I, I, and there's, this is going to be kind okay. of a long explanation. Start with your number five though. I, no, I'm going to. Uh, my number five is uh, in honor of Denis Villeneuve. It is Denis Villeneuve, and I'd love to see him. This is kind of unoriginal. I would love to see him do a sequel to the original Alien. Um, I think he really nailed that like early Ridley Scott, those the, the 79 to 80 Ridley Scott aesthetic, and I think he captured that really well, and he he kind of evolved that vision and I'd love to see I I love Alien is one of my favorite films um, I think it's so like Blade Runner it's so visionary in a way and I, I'd love to see him do like a proper sequel to it not and I know that there's a, been a really good sequel made to that but I think you know in, in, in these modern times when we're you know when uh, <laughs> that Cobra Kai TV show is being made like you could find Which an original so funny one. by the way you could find an original way to do to do it and so, uh, that, so so are you say, so in this world where Villeneuve directs an alien sequel, James Cameron's doesn't exist, or is or are we doing a reboot like everything else is getting, like a Spider Man reboot? Yeah, I mean, I I, I think be, just because of the circumstances, you could not make. Uh, a, I don't think you could, you would want to do it with um, Sigourney Weaver. So you'd have to. It's sort of set in the same world, much like the okay, I, I, yeah. And so I sort I just of like see a Prometheus him. type sequel where you have yeah, totally but, different characters. Sure, sure. Okay, um, so I I avoided anything that already had a sequel, which it's amazing how when you're going through lists of movies and you say, okay, this would be good with a sequel, you realize it already had one. Yeah. Um, it, it, which is what made this list a little bit difficult. Um, so let's see. My number five um, is I Am Legend. Um, oh, wow. And for a couple of reasons. One this movie does sort of end in a way where I think there's more story to be told. Like nothing is ultimately totally resolved. Like you think that the cure has been found. Will Smith hands it off to, um, I think the character's name is Anna. Um, but you know, you know, you learn a little bit about her and I think it'd be interesting to see her story. And the director I chose was Alfonso Cuaron. And we mentioned a movie before children of men. I feel like that look and that feel of that movie uh, works well with I Am Legend and the sequel to I Am Legend. So that's a great I, that's a great pick. I think I we should like start like tallying up who's who's winning. And I feel like we're oh my on God. A one to so zero. You're I winning. I literally I literally had this thought this week that I think to, that I was going to suggest to you guys that we should start turning the top five into a contest. And okay, so, each one gets a point. All right. And, so I'm giving you a point for that one. All right. One nothing me. Perfect. Okay. You're number four. All right, my number four. This is. I'm not gonna get a point for this one. Um, 
my one of my favorite movies of all time, if not my favorite movie of all time, is Master and Commander: The Far Side of the World, which is of course based on I think two or three or a couple different um, books written by Patrick O'Brien, which is called the uh, what are which are called the Aubrey Matron stories. Um, there's a bunch of books. I think there's like ten that he wrote in like um, I think in the early 1900s or, or sometime in then. And actually, I think it was in the 70s. Um, but there's a bunch of books, and so it was apt to be adapted into a um, into a movie series too. But um, it, the first one cost a ton of money, and it didn't. Perf- I mean, it did okay, but it didn't do well enough to warrant a sequel. There's been talks of wanting to do one, and I think you know I'd love to see um, Peter Weir do it, who directed the original one. But obviously, that's not a choice here, and so I had a weird kind of choice. I, I thought of um, Andrew Dominic, who directed. Oh, um, very interesting. That's a good choice. Uh, the assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford, and it was that sort of the quietness and originality that he captured in that movie. Um, that thought that he might be able to bring something interesting to the Aubrey Matron series. Um, so that so Master and Commander was the reason I wanted you to go first because I assumed it would be on your list. But if it wasn't, I was going to mention it. Um, but I actually had a really hard time thinking of a director for that. Yeah, and it's I, a tough one. I wrote down the four I wrote down were Spielberg, Ridley Scott, James Cameron, and Christopher Nolan. None of whom felt right. Um, you know, the it, James Cameron I sort of dismissed because like every like you know the whole thing would be CGI'd and it would be ridiculous. Um, but Spielberg seemed right. But he's you know that's sort of an easy choice. Um, so I give you a lot of credit for Andrew Dominic. I like that. Like it's such a, it, there is so much unspoken in that movie and everything is sort of so quiet and like you're just so, and it, it's a not, it's no mystery that you love that movie. It's sort of equivalent to like deep space. They're just out in the middle of the ocean with like no ways of communicating to the outside world. So, yeah. um, you know, I think, I think Dominic's are a really good choice there. Okay. Um, so my number four uh, is a movie that actually, at what ter- it turned out to have it looked seemed like a remake when it was made but cer- turned out to be a prequel um but it's the thing um the prequel was a piece of shit the original john carpenter film i think is is interesting and i think guillermo del toro could do a lot of interesting things with a sequel to that movie because the idea is so cool like that this is there's this monster that can kind of just take on the shape of anything that's around it and Del Toro's done a good job with creature features, and I just think that he could do something interesting and get a good story. Um, and he's just—he—he's such a visionary director, and he's an amazing storyteller. And I think that it could really work. I'm really glad you mentioned the thing. Uh, I wanted to find a way to bring this up, but did you know Blade Runner and the Thing opened on the same day? Really? <laughs> yes, they Weird. came. Both came out the same weekend. That's interesting. Um, yeah, um, I. The only problem I have with that is I think that there is a there is a sort of irreverence, a sort of lack of heart, for lack of a better word, to the thing that I that I wouldn't want Del Toro to bring his childish sensibility to. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, and so I think you might want to find a little bit more of a, um, I don't know, less. I, I I understand your from an aesthetic point of view that it makes total sense. He'd do a great job with that, but um, I'd want to make sure he would he'd make that as dark as it originally was. It would also be weird with uh, I forget, sir. What's the guy's name that it plays that's in all his movies that plays the 
plays oh, the yeah. creatures. Um, yeah. <laughs> he would be the thing, which would right. yeah, <laughs> he'd be the work. alien. That, that would, would be work. weird. All right, so we'll give you a point. Um, Master and Commander, while that may be a, a bit of an obvious choice because it sort of was set up for a sequel that it never got, the Andrew Dominic pick is brilliant. So Thank one to so. one. Okay, should I go now? Should I go? Yeah, number three. So my number three is um, not so much a movie I want to see a sequel to, but there will definitely inevitably be a sequel to and more and more and more, and that's a James Bond movie. Um, Christopher Nolan's name has been floated a lot for to do a James Bond movie. Um, I think they may or may not have talked to him about the last three or four that they've done, and um, my guess is they just um, – the Broccoli's who produces those movies are not willing to – surrender enough creative control to him to uh, entice him to make that movie uh, I heard maybe um, Danny Boyle is doing the next one um, so I don't great. really know but the person who I actually really like to see do a, a James Bond movie over anybody is David Fincher really yes I mean that's not necessarily I wouldn't I don't want that to be David Fincher's next movie. Like I'd rather see David Fincher make a different movie, but if I'm making a new James Bond movie, I'd really love to see what Fincher brings to it. Um, I think Fincher is someone who is not a writer, but he's someone who can really work a script. Uh, Mm -hmm. We saw that with the social network, especially I think he could make a really good script, much like what I would expect. uh, um, What's his name did with Skyfall, for example, um, Sam Mendes. Mendes, yep. And um, I just think like his aesthetic is very modern and um, would be really kind of interesting to see how he handled a, a Bond movie. I think, um, I think his his sort of mentality would be really interesting with this new kind of brooding um, modern Bond that uh, Daniel Craig has created. But it sounds like this is going to be his last one, so that may never happen. Daniel Craig's last one. Yeah. Yeah. I um. There was there were rumors several years back about Tarantino directing a Bond movie, and ever since I heard that, that's been he's been my pick to to direct a Bond movie, which I think would just be amazing. And but that sort of falls into the same, uh, pr- even more so probably than Christopher Nolan with surrendering creative control, because Tarantino would also have to write it, and uh, Christoph Waltz would have to be in it. And... <laughs> Um. So <laughs> that's okay. He's already been in one. So Christoph Waltz would have to be the would be have to be Bond. But um, he was the bad guy in the last one. So oh, really? Yeah. I I so I I can't even be sure I've seen the last one. They all blend together to me. They're like Bourne movies. I can actually honestly like Mission Impossible movies, which I, I always feel like blend together. Yeah. Um. All right. So my number three. Um. Actually, I have three directors written down here. I'm going to have to pick one, um, but I'm going to give myself as much time as I can. And uh, it is Boogie Nights. Love to see a sequel to Boogie Nights. Um, you know, every character in that movie is, you know, it, it, it is given a setup to their future. Um, it, you know, so to kind of seeing where they go from there, I think would be would be fun. Um, and I'll tell you, the uh, the two directors that I'm not going to go with. Or Soderbergh, who handles ensemble casts great, but I don't mm-hmm. feel like would capture the right tone of Boogie Nights. Um, David o. Russell was another one I considered, but I'm going to go with Shane Black, um, mm. who I thought did kind of the you know '70s era LA really well in The Nice Guys, mm-hmm. which was a I thought it was a pretty good movie and really funny. Um, so I think I feel like he would do a good job kind of capturing the tone of the movie. I feel like the characters 
kind of speak for themselves. Um, PTA did the hard work there. Um, probably still have Paul Thomas Anderson write the script <laughs> just yeah. to be just to be safe um, if we're going in there. But to kind of see, you know, what ends up happening with with Dirk Diggler and um, Chest Rockwell and well, that's his pseudonyme. But uh, <laughs> yeah, I think it'd be great. Um, I think there's more story to be told there. I think you made the right directorial Even- pick there because there's a lot of similarities between. I actually get them confused sometimes between the nice guys and um, what was that movie that he made that none of us liked? Um, Inherent Vice, which Inherent I didn't Vice. see. Inherent yeah. Vice, yeah. There's like they are basically set in the same time, have very similar um, plots, um, and I often get them mixed up. And so I think that's an interesting pick. I I don't want to see a sequel to Boogie Nights, um, but. Oh, do I lose a point there? What was your number three? I already forgot. The Fincher on good. Bond. Yeah, Fincher doing <laughs> Bond. I think that's. I think that wins. I think that's got. But that's tricky because Bond has had so many sequels. I at least went with something that had never had one. So. Okay. Do we, we call split? It a, let's call do it a we draw. Split a point. Okay. So let's two, push it. Let's push to the next. <laughs> one. All right. Two to two. All right. Number twos. Okay. Um. Okay. So this is a this is a weird one. So Heat, uh, directed by Michael Mann, who we, who we discuss, is one of my favorite films. Um, and it was originally done as a TV pilot uh, called L.A. Takedown that was going to be like a TV series, but um, it kind of fell apart and didn't work, and so they just made the pilot, and then years later, Michael Mann decided to make a real three-hour But it was like a, a, a TV... Wasn't L.A. Takedown like a TV movie? It wasn't it longer? Yes. I think they just they turned the pilot into a, a movie gotcha. once it... Yeah. Okay. Um, so what I would like to see is I'd like to see them take another shot at that and actually do a TV, like a limited series TV. Oh, that would be amazing. With Heat. Um, and I want Scott Cooper to direct it. Yeah, well, Jeremy worked for, with Scott Cooper, so we could get him. Yeah, so we could probably get him. Yep. Um, he's a director that like I don't think has quite proven himself. Like He's got these flashes of like yep. greatness. I thought there were really nice moments of um, like into the furnace and um, there's just like he sort of does that he's kind of like the modern purveyor of violence in movies in my opinion um, and I think I, I'm excited to see I don't know what his next movie is but like I, wa- I really want to see Hostiles which just came out yeah I do um, too and uh, I think he's he's got something that I think would, would work here um, so that, that's my number two okay yeah I like that um all right, my number two. Uh, so, you already mentioned David Fincher, but I've got him at the helm of a sequel coming up. And actually, this I'd be okay with either a sequel or a prequel. But either way, it would have to ex- kind of explore deeper the this in particular character. But it's for the usual suspects, um, and you know, much in the way that Fincher kind of delved into the mind of a serial killer in Seven, I'd like to see him explore Kaiser Soze. Like a Kaiser Soze origin story? Yeah, either that, something at the beginning or after. I think either one would work fine. But you only get this little kind of, you know, uh, flashback story of who Kaiser Soze is. And that's intentional and worked great in The Usual Suspects. But I think that's something that could be done really well. And it would be super dark. And it would be right up Fincher's alley. I think it would be great. And isn't that backstory kind of bullshit? Like, aren't we supposed to assume I think, yeah, he makes it up. Yeah, yep. Yeah, I think so. So I think you could do a whole lot of stuff with that. Um, this is a yeah, tough one too. I this don't. A, I don't know that we can use. We can have uh, Kevin Spacey play that part though. So. That's the trick. 
and I do. I, I thought about that even. I'm like, okay, so would, that's why a prequel maybe would work. You get somebody younger, <laughs> even though they've worked together quite a bit. That would yeah. sort of be perfect. But yeah, yeah, I think you can do that. You know, maybe you get like a Ryan Gosling to play like the young Kaiser Soze. Yeah, that works. That works. <laughs> uh, you know, you know, or Jesse Eisenberg. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um. Okay, but this is tough. I don't know. I liked your pick, so I might I might concede that because Kevin Spacey can't be in movies anymore. Okay. All right. And I'm confident in my number one. Excellent. Okay. So, um, in 2008 or 2007, 2007, 2008, uh, when you and I were somehow working during the writer's strike in LA, brilliantly. Um, so talented. George Miller was, um, in Australia making, uh, in pre-production on a justice league movie. And it was going to be a big budget, huge budget movie. Um, based uh, on the Justice League, of course, which eventually was made by Zack Snyder slash um, Joss Whedon uh, last year. Um, But they canned the movie. They shut it down. They were actually, they they had built sets. They were there. All the cast was there. Um, But they shut it down because of the writer's strike. Um, And interestingly enough, like there was also this thing about like Nolan, you know, they were still, you know, the Dark Knight was about to come out. Mm -hmm. Um, and so there was this idea of there being two Batmans. Uh, it was going to be Army Hammer was going to play the Batman. And then you'd have like, you'd have the Christian Bale Nolan Batmans and then this other series that had nothing to do with it. And that I think pissed Nolan off and he flexed and decided to, I think that had another thing to do with shutting it down. But um, anyways, so George Miller's name was floated around for like a Man of Steel sequel um, with Henry Cavill, which I don't think would be very interesting, but I would love to see George Miller do Batman. Yeah, I think that would be interesting. I don't know why is DC having such a hard time. Like, did did you see the Aquaman trailer? It looks terrible. It's so bad. Like, I like it was. That's the worst movie I've seen this year. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, I mean, I don't know. I it's I'm a not, mystery to me because you know I'm no you know fan of the Marvel movies, but my God, like yeah, it's it's embarrassing. And, and and Warner Brothers has done such a great job managing a bunch of series. Like they did Harry Potter, of course. Yeah. And um, what else have they done? That's been a really great example. They've they've done they've they've handled um, just a really uh, they've done these series really well before. But they yeah they just can't seem to get their arms around. Um, yeah, the movies are just they, they've been so. I mean, Wonder Woman got good reviews, but I didn't think that was particularly good either. Um, so yeah, I don't know it. But when I couldn't believe, I couldn't, I literally couldn't believe what I was watching when I was watching that Aquaman trailer. It was just, it was so all over the place. Yeah. Um, all right. So for my number one, um, so you sort of have to like, for this one, you, I, I sort of need to assume that all the actors are of the appropriate age. Um, okay. So you have to suspend your disbelief a little bit because what I don't want for it is to be like all like the sequel to be like these characters kids going through the same experience sure Um, sure, what i was really thinking is that it's been a while since we've had a good workplace comedy yeah um you know you have some things like horrible bosses and stuff like that and you know while i was never a big fan of office space that was a you know pretty successful workplace comedy um but i would love to see a sequel to animal house Hmm. where all those characters are now in the real world trying to um get by uh, and I don't think that there'd be anybody better to direct that than Mr. Edgar Wright. Interesting. Uh, 
I mean, yeah, that's original, certainly. But why would they be working together, all those guys? The, they don't even need to be working together. Like, I feel like, in, you know, they're probably working in the same town. It's um, like a re- maybe it's a, maybe it's like a fiftieth reunion or something. It, well, see, that's the thing is that Grant, you know, I mean, you could do that, I suppose, but I feel like then it starts to get a little cheesy if it's a you know that movie was like what seventy eight or something like that. But so maybe it's their you know their college reunion and you know John Belushi is dead now and they have to make a joke about that and stuff. But I almost picture it more as like the immediate aftermath. So that's why I say let's assume. You know, everybody's of the appropriate age. They've now failed out of college and they are trying to (laughs) make it in the working world in supposedly the 1980s when, uh, you know, jobs weren't necessarily at a premium. Well, I do want people to email in at feedback at getyourfilmfixedpodcast.com and let us know which podcast was better. The one without me, please, or... The one without Jeremy. I mean, it's not a hard question. We like to start things off easy. Um, but, you know, if you have an opinion, feedback at getyourfilmfixpodcast.com. You can also like us on Instagram and Facebook. And you can follow us on those pages. I don't know how social media works anymore. Like likes and follows. I can't even like, I can't, I can't. Well, don't say that. We, we definitely want people to follow us and to like us. Follow us and like us on both. Yes, that's all please. that's all it is. I felt like I, I made it too complicated, didn't I? I'm staying. I'm finishing my coffee. Enjoying my coffee. And as you all know, I took a little bit of ridicule for my brilliant vacation in Oh, I forget where I was. Shit. Um, Delaware. Delaware. That's right. That's right. Bethany Beach. I should have just said Bethany Beach. That was what I realized afterwards. Is, is that um, cooler? I mean, than Delaware. I mean, it's in Delaware, but just, then just saying Delaware, I think it is cooler. So I, I'm, I'm looking at Bethany Beach and I see it's in Sussex County. Isn't every pretty much every county in the uh, Northeast named Sussex County? <laughs> Or Essex or Middlesex, yeah. Jeez. Oh, you guys are obsessed with sex.